This is The Road Less Travelled, presented by Nikki Shea. G'day everyone, welcome to this week's edition of The Road Less Travelled. It's Nikki Shea back with you this week. A warm welcome to you if you're a return listener. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome aboard The Road Less Travelled. It's all about adventure, travelling, camping, road trips, overnight trips, weekend trips... Or as I say, if you're packing up everything and deciding to do the big lap of Australia, this is certainly one for you. Each week we bring you a different destination with a little bit of tales of history, background and a little bit more. If you'd like to interact with us, you can do that by sending an email, which is fatcat at iinet.net.au. You can also send me an SMS or give me a phone call on 042-752-8467. To find out more about what we do with The Road Less Travelled, you can join us on our webpage, which is fatcatmedia.com. And of course, following us too on social media through Facebook and Instagram and also our YouTube page as well. We've got Facebook and Instagram for Fat Cat Media and both of those social media platforms too for the Road Less Travelled podcast. And a massive thanks to those folks who have shared the podcast to their family and friends and also on their social media too. If you'd like to listen to us, you can do so uh, through, of course, Spotify, through Google Podcasts, Apple podcast and iHeartRadio as well. All you've got to do is search through Google or whatever search engine you're using, search for the Road Less Travelled podcast with me, Nikki Shea, and that's where you'll find us. So where are we this week? Well, I'm glad you've asked. This week, well, well, the subject that we're talking about will be turning 150 years old, but before we get to that, we need to give you the story behind it. And in a snapshot, I guess, we can say that on the 22nd of August 1872, the Overland Telegraph Line, which was a system to send messages over long distances using cables and electric signals, was finished between Adelaide and Darwin. It had been described as the greatest engineering feat carried out in 19th century Australia. Within months, it was linked to the Java to Darwin submarine telegraph table and Australia's communication time with Europe dropped from months to literally hours and Australia was no longer isolated from the rest of the world. In the early days of the colony of New South Wales, communication with Britain could take absolute years. Ships carrying letters between England and Sydney took up to eight months one way and a reliable mail service was available only to government officials. After gold was discovered in Australia in the 1850s, there was now pressure to reach the gold fields as quickly as possible so that new, more and efficient ships were introduced to the Britain to Australia route. This cut down the travel time to Australia to only two months. These shorter voyages improved communication with Britain, but four months was still a long time to wait for a reply to a letter. Electric telegraph technology was developed in both Britain and America in the 1830s. It used what we could say as an electrical cable to send short messages which were coded into a series of electrical pulses taking the shape of dots and dashes, Morse code. These messages could be sent to people thousands of kilometres away in minutes rather than months. And Australia's first telegraph line was built between Melbourne and Williamstown in Victoria in 1854. Within four years, Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide were connected. But communication between continents was still difficult as laying underwater cables was a huge technical challenge. Different types of wires and waterproof coverings were experimented with from the 1840s. By 1870 there was underwater telegraph cables linking Britain with places as far away as Japan and Java, Java being of course Indonesia. 
So for Australia to be connected with the rest of the world, another major engineering challenge would have to be overcome. A telegraph line could be built, or had to be built rather, between southern and northern Australia. And as we know, in such a large, dry continent with so little communication infrastructure even today, this was one of Australia's greatest ever engineering undertakings. In July 1861, the disastrous Burke and Wills expedition suggested that safely travelling from Australia south to north was almost impossible. You, if you've listened to uh, the podcast from start to start to woe, you will know that uh, Charles Sturt was one of my um, heroes and someone that I res- sort of respected, admired, go- growing up, learning through him uh, as one of Australia's explorers. He had a person, a part of his party, called John McDougall Stewart. So don't get confused between Sturt and Stewart. So John McDougall Stewart, I always thought it was McDougall, but it's actually McDougall Stewart, and you may be familiar with Stewart's name, of the Stewart Highway. Stewart was a Scottish explorer and one of the most accomplished of all of Australia's inland explorers. He led the first successful expedition to traverse the Australian mainland from south to north and then return through the centre of the continent. His experience and the care that he showed for his team really ensured that he never, ever lost a man despite the harshness of the country he encountered. And man, oh man, is it harsh country. The explorations of Stuart eventually resulted in the 1863 annexation of a huge area of country to the Government of South Australia, and this area became known as the Northern Territory. In 1911, the Commonwealth of Australia assumed responsibility for that area, and in 1871 to 1872, the Australian Overland Telegraph Line was constructed along Stuart's route, and that will be our topic for this week's show. The principal road from Port Augusta to Darwin was also established essentially on his route and was in 1942 named the Stuart Highway in his honour, following a recommendation by the then Governor-General. Now, as I mentioned, the Overland Telegraph follows the footsteps of John McDougall Stewart, and it was a 3,200-kilometre telegraph line that connected Darwin with Port Augusta in South Australia. Completed 150 years ago this year in 1872, the telegraph line allowed fast communication between Australia and the rest of the world. An additional section was added in 1877 with the completion of the West Australian section of the line. It was one of the great engineering feats of 19th century Australia and probably the most significant milestone really in the history of telegraphy in Australia. The concept and competition of it, I guess, really started around 1855 with the intensification about possible routes for the connection of Australia to the new telegraph cable in Java and thus onto Europe. Among the routes under consideration were either Ceylon to Albany and WA or Java to the north coast of Australia and then either onto the east coast or then down through south through the centre of the continent to Adelaide. So competition between the colonies over the route was fierce. It was super fierce. The Victorian government organised the expedition led by Burke and Wills to cross the continent from Menindee to the Gulf of Carpentaria in 1860. Now, although that route was traversed, the expedition, as we know, ended in disaster. So the South Australian government recognised the economic benefits that would result from becoming the centre of the telegraph network and it offered a reward of £2,000 to encourage an expedition to find a route between South Australia and the North Coast. 
John McDowell Stewart had meantime also been endeavouring to cross the continent starting from the northern Flinders Ranges and was successful on his sixth attempt in 1862. James Chambers had gained an interest in the concept of a telegraph across Australia, across the outback of Australia rather, and he paid the costs for Stuart's expeditions into northern Australia. That's right, he did six trips before he was successful. Stuart had the proposed telegraph line in mind as he travelled across the desert, noting the best places for river crossings, sources of timber for the telegraph poles and also water supplies. On July 24th, his expedition finally reached the north coast at a place Stuart named Chambers Bay after his employer and sponsor. And South Australian Governor Richard MacDonald gave his strong support to the project. In 1863, an order in council transferred Northern Territory to South Australia, aiming to secure land for an international telegraph connection. Now with a potential route, South Australia strengthened her position for the telegraph line in 1865 when Parliament authorised the construction of a telegraph line between Adelaide and Port Augusta, 300 kilometres to the north. This move provoked outrage in Queensland amongst the advocates of the Darwin to Burketown route. The final contract was secured in 1870 when the South Australian government agreed to construct 3,200 kilometres of line to Darwin, while the British Australian Telegraph Company promised to lay the undersea cable from Java to Darwin. The latter was to be finished on the 31st of December 1871 and severe penalties were to apply if the connecting link wasn't ready. So construction of it all. Well, the South Australian Superintendent of Telegraphs was Charles Todd. He was appointed to head the project and he devised a timetable to complete the immense project on a schedule. Now, Todd had built South Australia's first telegraph line and extended it on to Melbourne and the contract stipulated a total cost of no more than £128,000 and it had to be done within two years of construction time. So Todd divided the route into three sections, each 600 miles, uh, northern and southern sections to be handled by private contractors and a central section which would be constructed by his own department. This telegraph line would comprise more than 30,000 wrought iron poles, insulators, batteries, wire and other equipment ordered from England. The poles were to be placed 80 metres apart and repeater stations built every 250 kilometres. So Charles Toddy appointed staff to whom the contractors would be responsible. There was explorers such as John Ross, uh, surveyors such as uh, William Harvey, William McMinn, other people along the line, plenty of famous names, Christopher Giles as well. He assembled a team of men for his central section, surveyors, linesmen, carpenters, labourers and cooks, and the team left Adelaide with horses, bullocks and carts loaded with provisions and equipment for many weeks. The central section would be surveyed by the explorer John Ross and Alfred Giles, who would be his second in command. The southern section from Port Augusta to Aberga Creek was contracted by Edward Baggett. Now, Derwent and Dalwood, <laughs> sounds like a dodgy um, accounting firm, they won the contract for the northern section of 600 miles, arrived at Port Darwin in September 1870 with 80 men, 80 draft horses, bullocks, equipment and stores. The northern line was progressing well until the onset of the wet season in November 1870 and heavy rain of up to 10 inches or 250 millimetres a day waterlogged the ground and made it impossible for work to progress. With conditions worsening, the men went on strike, rancid food and disease spreading mosquitoes amongst their complaints. 
and on the 3rd of May 1871, the overseers of, overseer of works cancelled the contract and sent all workers back to Adelaide on the basis of insufficient progress. And they had erected poles to, at, to a distance of 225 miles. So as you can imagine, there was problems throughout the course of that uh, completion area. And as the central and southern sections neared completion, they decided to take a different strategy with the construction of the northern section. It was now to be divided into four subsections, with the majority of men on the most northerly part of it. The undersea cable was finished earlier than expected, with the line from Java reaching Darwin on the 18th of November 1871, and was connected the following day. Now, just north of the South Australian border into the Northern Territory, that was surveyed in 1871 and a repeater station built in 1872. And because of those problems still facing the Northern section, the Queensland Superintendent of Telegraphs, he called for the abandonment of the project and for the line to connect the terminal at Burketown. But Todd was adamant and pressed on, and by the end of the year there was still over 300 kilometres of line to erect. But the line was already substantially in use from May 1872 by the carrying of messages by horse or camel across the uncompleted section. During this time, Todd began visiting workers along the line to lift their spirits, and the message he sent along the incomplete line in 1872 took nine days to reach Adelaide. So running now more than seven months behind schedule, the two lines, they were finally joined at Fuse Ponds on Thursday the 22nd of August 1872 and Todd was given the honour of sending the first message along the completed line. It says, We have this day, within two years, completed a line of communications 2,000 miles long through the very centre of Australia until a few years ago a terra incognita believed to be a desert. After the first messages had been exchanged over the new line, Todd was accompanied by the surveyor uh, Richard Nuckney on the return journey from central Mount Stewart to Adelaide. So to the running of the Overland Telegraph Line, the requirements of 19th century telegraphy meant that the Overland Telegraph Line initially required repeater stations every 250 to 300 kilometres to boost the signal. And the repeater stations contained two power sources. The line was powered by cells, which is a variation of Daniel cells, as well as um, other cells for the local equipment. And the repeater stations had a staff of four to six, including a station master, the linesman and the telegraphists. The southern section of the line initially included repeater stations at Beltana, Strangway Springs and Peak. In 1884 a repeater station was added at Maree and in 1896 the repeater stations at Strangway Springs and Peak were closed and the new stations were opened at William Creek and Udnadatta which then aligned with the Great Northern Railway. So Australia was now hooked up with the rest of the world but Australia itself couldn't really connect with each other and the final stage of connecting Australia to the world began in 1875 when the West Australia and South Australia governments agreed to build a line across the Nullarbor Plain. This equally challenging project was completed in 1877. Around 1871 a second cable connected Java with an overland line from Perth to Cable Station at Roebuck Bay in WA and when Darwin was bombed in World War II the line was deliberately cut just before the attack. 
In 2008, its engineering heritage was recognised by the installation of markers provided by the Engineers Australia Recognition Program at a location in Darwin near the place where the cable reached the shore, the Alice Springs Telegraph Station and the General Post Office in Adelaide too. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back with more of The Road Less Travelled in just a moment. The Road Less Travelled podcast is a proudly Australian, fiercely independent podcast. Hosted and produced by me, Nikki Shea, for Fat Cat Media. We receive no corporate payments, which means we rely on self-sufficient financial support. If you can and are able to, we would love you to support us via Patreon. Listen to the Road Less Travel podcast on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and iHeartRadio. Be inspired with our seminars and motivational speaking. We really enjoy and receive a lot of satisfaction and overwhelming feedback in conducting seminars. This involves giving motivational speeches and inspiring people to challenge themselves and become better at what they want to become better at. Relying on years in the media plus a life-changing health issue, Nikki will challenge and transform her audiences. If you truly and honestly want to help someone reach their true potential, stop answering all their questions and solving all their problems. For further information, head to fatcatmedia.com.au or drop us an email, fatcat at iinet.net.au. You're listening to the Road Less Travelled podcast with Nikki Shea. Welcome back to the Road Less Travelled. And as you know, this week we're talking about the Overland Telegraph line. You can still visit the numerous sites of the old Overland Telegraph line and there's plenty of uh, tours that you can do too, uh, tours of the Flinders Ranges, the Udna Data Track as well. Um, you can do the Outback Adventure to well-known sites along the Udna Data Track, including Curdie Merker and Farina, as well as an in-depth tour of the majestic Flinders Ranges, such as Woolpena Pound and Flinders Ranges National Park, which we've spoken about on previous editions of the show. But also to lesser-known gems, including Brychina Gorge, Parachuna Gorge, Bunyaroo, Gorge and plenty of other collections that you can do through the Flinders Ranges too. You can begin at the old railhead at Maree. There's a number of abandoned small towns and railway sidings that sit along the Udnadatta track. Maree is at the end of the line for the rail from Port Augusta and the long journey from Channel Country for the cattle driven down the Catherine track. It was once a bustling centre for outback commerce, the most northern railhead located at the crossroad of major overland trade routes. During the late uh, 19th century and the early 20th century, Maree famously provided a home base for the Afghan camel drivers who helped with the construction of the overland telegraph and also the Gan railways. Further along, the Curdie Merka siding is a particularly fascinating spot, and we've spoken about this too when we have done the old GAN podcast too. Curdie Merka holding a long history as a key location on the old Overland Telegraph line from and the original GAN railway too. The Curdie Merka siding remains intact, and the railway buildings, the desalination plants, the water tower, the Fetters cottages, and the Stewart Creek Bridge are all still standing in reasonable condition, dominating the flat landscape. And there are still rail lines too, as well as a never-ending line of scattered remains of both telegraph and rail tracks too. The track's remote namesake town of Udnadatta has a big history as a trading stop and a railway town for the old GAN. As South Australia's most northerly town, and most northerly railway town rather, it was the starting point for travellers heading to the Northern Territory and a major railhead for cattle. 
By 1893, there were some 50 Afghans based at Udnadatta working 400 camels in every direction from the town. There was also a Chinese community there which flourished, setting up market gardens at Hookie's Hole on the Niels River. The um, the outback tours that you can do, and you can do them by yourself, you can do self-drive tours, it just allows you to see and explore the ancient Flinders Ranges landscape too, more than 600 million years old, and there's plenty of Aboriginal culture and history dating back 60,000 years, where you can reflect on the history of European settlement in the 18th and 19th centuries along the way at Udnadatta, William Creek at Maori, and as well as the ghost towns of Curdie Merka and Farina, where the legendary stockman Stanley Kidman brought his cattle out of the Channel Country, and there's there's a diversity of abundant natural wildlife and the natural habitats of South Australia's extraordinary vast ancient landscapes too. And uh, you just follow the overland uh, telegraph line pretty much follows um, from Mare up through the Stewart Highway um, right up through to, to Darwin and Catherine. So um, it's a fantastic place to, to look at. So it was John Madewell Stewart who actually paved the way for the overland telegraph line and it was his sixth expedition that was officially launched at James Chambers' home in North Adelaide on the 23rd of October 1861. Their first stop before they'd reached the town of Gawler was forced by trouble with their horses. One had reared striking Stuart's temple with its hoof, rendering him unconscious and then trampling his right hand, dislocating two joints and tearing flesh and nail from the first finger. At first, it was feared amputation would be necessary, but Stuart and Waterhouse, who was the naturalist appointed by the government, were able to catch up with the rest of the party um, at one of, uh, I think it was one of Chambers' brothers' station at Mullaloo five weeks later. They didn't leave Chambers Creek until the 8th of January 1862. These explorers, they loved doing everything in the heat of the Australian summer. One of the party, John Woodford, son of the city coroner, was dismissed by Stuart for insubordination, having refused to be parted with his great coat and contrary to Stuart's instructions for keeping a personal diary. The party, comprising of 10 men and 71 horses, Benjamin Head, veteran of the 4th Expedition, was still too ill to accompany them, so the party made good time to Newcastle waters, reaching that point on the 5th of April, and experiencing conflict with the local Aborigines once again. Here they rested for a week before Stuart led a scouting party north, finding good water for the main body to move up to. The next stage, however, proved more difficult. Five times Stuart and his scouts tried to find a route to Victoria River without success. Finally, he headed north rather than northwest and was rewarded with a series of small waterholes leading to daily waters about 150 kilometres north of Newcastle waters. Stuart made one last attempt, bearing in mind this is his sixth expedition up to this particular area. He made one last attempt to reach Victoria River before continuing north to the top end. And on the 9th of June, he reached a territory that had already been mapped out. And on the 1st of July, he made Mary River. Finally, on the 24th of July, the expedition reached the beach on Van Diemen Gulf, east of today's Darwin. And on the following day, Stuart raised there the flag he had received from Elizabeth Chambers and named the bay there after her Chambers Bay, a name it still carries today, and he and his companions had crossed the continent from south to north finally, after six attempts to do it. By current standards, I guess Stuart was physically a small, wiry man, but in fact he was of average build of Western European men at that time. He had a full dark beard and sometimes wore moleskin trousers and an unfashionable long-tailed blue coat with brass buttons and a cabbage tree hat. 
So what happened to John Stewart? Well, many years of hard conditions combined with malnutrition, the scurvy that he'd suffered and other illnesses that had rendered, rendered him practically blind in pain and in such poor health that he spent some 900 kilometres of the return journey of his last expedition being carried uh, between two horses. He never recovered his health. He prepared his diaries for publication and on the 23rd of April 1864, he left aboard the ship for Britain, initially to visit his sister in Scotland. He died in London two years later and he's buried at Kensal Green Cemetery. Now while Stuart was responsible for naming a large number of features for friends, backers and fellow explorers, he was sparingly uh, in the use of his own name. Central Mount Stuart, which he reckoned to be the geographical centre of Australia, he'd, he'd actually designated Central Mount Sturt to honour his friend Captain Charles Sturt. So places after Stuart include, of course, McDool Peak, which is a hill in South Australia, there's Stuart Street in Canberra, the Stuart Highway, Stuart Park in Darwin, Central Mount Stuart, Stuart Creek, which is in the far north of South Australia. In Wyala, there's McDool Stuart Avenue, Stuart High School in Wyala, um, the Electoral Division of Stuart in the Northern Territory, and also there's an Electoral Division of Stuart in South Australia too. The Stuart Range is upland close to the town of Stuart, town of Stuart Range, which was changed to Coobapedi, and the, sta- the stand, the town of Stuart, which was changed to Alice Springs in 1933. There's a statue honouring Stuart which can be found in Victoria Square in Adelaide, while in Darwin there's both a statue and a monument to celebrate his achievements. And in March 2010, the McDool Stuart Lodge of Freemasons in Alice Springs commissioned a four metre high statue of Stuart for donation to the Alice Springs Town Council to commemorate the 150th anniversary of his fourth expedition where he had reached the centre of the continent. The statue is located in a heritage precinct near the old hospital. In England, he is commemorated by a plaque on the house where he lived and died in Kensington in London. And in 2011, his grave at Kensal Green Cemetery was refurbished to its former glory. In Scotland, there's also a plaque on the house where he was born. The property of John McDowell Stuart View is available as a holiday let restored and owned by the local historic buildings trust. And John McDowell Stewart, he was only 51 when he died, and he died in 1866 and didn't get to see the uh, the laying of the Overland Telegraph Line. Time for something to eat. The tomato, onion and cheddar cheese tart. Now, the pastry for this tart incorporates both butter and sour cream and it just makes the easiest, most delicious, delicate, flaky, buttery tart you've ever tasted. This tomato, onion and cheese tart you can serve with a fresh leafy salad. The ingredients for the pastry is 250 grams of plain flour plus extra for dusting, 150 grams of cold unsalted butter diced, uh, half a tablespoon of salt, 125 grams of sour cream and egg. The filling you will need 300 grams of large tomatoes, 400 grams of a white onion thinly sliced, 2 teaspoons of chopped thyme, 50 grams of unsalted butter, 100 grams of sour cream, you want about 100 grams of grated cheddar cheese, 3 eggs, uh, a tablespoon of plain flour, 2 tablespoons of cream, 2 tablespoons of grated parmesan. The oven temperatures are for convectional ovens. If you're using a fan-forced convection, reduce the temperature by about 20 degrees, okay? We're into it. The uh, Start by making your pastry first, all right? 
in the bowl of a food processor, combine the flour, the butter, the salt, and pulse it until the mixture resembles those fine bread fine breadcrumbs. Then you add the sour cream and the egg and you pulse it a few more times until the pastry comes together in a ball. You can shape this into a disc, wrap it in plastic sort of glad wrap and put it in the fridge at least an hour in the fridge. That's where you've got time to put your oven on. You can remove and put it to 180 degrees. Remove the pastry from the fridge and you dust it with flour. Roll it out to about 2 to 3 millimetres in thickness. Try to keep it as round as possible. Then just gently lift this into the base of a pie dish or a tart tin. And you want to leave about 1 to 2 centimetres of excess pastry hanging over the edge to allow for shrinkage as it bakes. And you can use scissors to trim off any wider bits or a knife. You press a sheet of baking paper on top of the pastry, fill it with baking weights or uncooked rice or beans to prevent the pastry rising up as it cooks. Then you place the dish on a tray and you bake it for 20 to 30 minutes. When the crust is looking golden on sort of the edges, you remove the um, baking weights and continue baking on for another 15 to 20 minutes. If the crust looks like it's rising up, poke a few holes in it with a fork and that allows the steam to escape. When it's golden all over, remove it from the oven and leave it to cool completely. This step could be done in advance and reduce the oven temperature to around 160 degrees ready to bake the pie. In the meantime, peel your tomatoes by cutting a small X in their base, dropping them into boiling water for 10 to 20 seconds, then immediately refreshing them in iced water. The skin should really easily peel off now starting from the X. You cut into 5 mil uh, quarter inch slices and put it aside. In a sauté pan, sauté your onions and the thyme in the butter until completely soft and sort of see-through but not coloured. That's when you season with salt and black pepper and set it aside to cool down. Once it's cool, you mix it with the sour cream, the cheddar, cheese, the eggs and the flour. You pour the mixture into the base of the tart shell, then layer the sliced tomatoes over the top and then finally sprinkle with the cream and the parmesan and place it on the tray. You bake it in the oven for 40 to 60 minutes or until the tart is no longer wobbly and you know how it's like wobbly, um, it starts starts to completely set. If the crust is starting to brown too much, wrap the edge in foil to allow the custard to continue cooking because that's pretty much what it looks like custard remove it from the oven serve warm and at room temperature with a leafy salad it is absolutely delicious it is tomato onion and cheddar cheese tart you will come out king of the kitchen or queen of the kitchen you put this on the table for the family it's absolutely delicious as i said serve it with a uh, leafy salad you can even have it cold but if you want to have it hot you can serve it with some fresh steamed vegetables as well now, if you've got a tried and true recipe or one that you've just discovered by accident when you're out in the road or when you're camping or even with your home, share it with us. Drop me an email, fatcat at iinet.net.au or send me a message on Facebook or Instagram. And that brings us to the end of this week's show. Trust that you've enjoyed a little bit of history with John McDowell Stewart and the Overland Telegraph line. My name is Nikki Shea. Thanks so much for joining us and I hope to see you somewhere out there on the road less travelled. Talk to you next week. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. The Road Less Travelled is presented by Nikki Shea and produced by Fat Cat Media.